Well, I received in the mail not too long ago a nice glossy brochure based upon past experiences. I was pretty sure that that was a brochure advertising a church, and I was right. And at the top of that brochure, in bold letters, was uh, this phrase, Overcome your challenges. Overcome your challenges. And then I read the fine print. And this is what was in fine print. It said, thousands of years ago, a young boy stood alone with only a slingshot and some stones. And he took aim at a menacing giant of a warrior. Even now, Goliaths roamed the world and threatened to rob us of our peace and joy, debt, depression, divorce, and discouragement. The good news is that you don't need to face your Goliaths alone. Now, just reading that little excerpt, I was aware of how they were going to approach these Old Testament passages. I was aware of how they treated the Scriptures. We are made aware of how they understand the Old Testament narratives. And basically, the way that they would approach these passages, such as we would find in Joshua, is that we see in them some sort of symbols which help illustrate therapeutic health for us to overcome the struggles of our life. And so the Anakim and the giants and the king uh, of Hazors uh, in our life, the debt, the depression, the fear, the doubt, the anxiety, the the, uh, crash of the stock market, all of those things now are the parallel, the spiritual parallel of the real enemies that Israel fought uh, thousands of years ago. But this isn't how we read the Bible according to the Bible's own understanding of these events. Because as we look at the book of Joshua, as we've been studying it through, uh, we've noticed again and again that the meanings of the text are carefully communicated by the author. In other words, the Bible teaches us how to read the Bible if we just read it carefully. And I don't believe that if Joshua were to preach about the battles that he fought against Jericho and Ai and Azor, against the southern Canaanite coalition, the northern Canaanite coalition, that he would have said to the people of Israel, and now that you're settled in the land, we understand that you have new giants in your life. The giants of economic despair, the giants of figuring out how to put food on the table, the giants of how to put shoes on your children. I don't believe Joshua would have said that at all. We know that because of the way this text is structured. And I, and I would have you notice uh, verse 16, chapter 11. Very important little cue that the writer of the book of Joshua gives us to help us understand how do we evaluate all of this killing. Hope your Bible translation in verse 16 begins with thus. Thus is this is the, uh, is the key word to, to grab our attention now. Here is the author saying, this is what all of this means. And, and so for the next several verses, uh, we are told, uh, again, of how Joshua met the enemy and through the help of the Lord, uh, God defeated his enemies. But finally, in verse 23, this looks back at the entire narrative of conquest, and it sums it up and it communicates the real theological and spiritual meaning that is for God's people. It says, so Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for inheritance to Israel according to the divisions by their tribes. Thus, the land had rest. You see there, the writer is communicating the sense and the meaning of the passage here of all of these conflicts, of of what's been standing behind Uh, The recounting of all of these battles, what he is saying is, through the obedience of Joshua to the commands of God, Israel entered into 
its rest. That's the main idea, and we want to explore that this morning as we study out this text. And and first of all, you'll notice that the text highlights over and over again that the way that Israel entered into their rest was through military obedience. It was through military obedience. That's the reason why we have all of these battles recorded for us and the particular strategies and tactics that were used was to tell us, first of all, that the rest here that is that is summarized in verse 23, the rest that the people of God obtained, it was obtained through military conquest. It was obtained through obedience. We saw that, uh, for instance, Joshua responded in obedience to the Lord in chapter 10 when the Canaanite coalition arose up there. The kings of the south made war against Gibeon, and Joshua consults the Lord, and the Lord says, go up to battle, and immediately Joshua goes up to battle, and he fights the Canaanite coalition, and God miraculously gives Israel the victory through harnessing the very forces of nature, causing the sun to stand still, and the moon to stand still, and raining down hailstorms from the sky. But that wasn't it, because as you read from 28 on, as we have already this morning, you notice that the text goes on to summarize Joshua's Joshua's total conquest of the southern regions of the land of Canaan. And I just want you to hear this as I read it out loud of how uh, Joshua went through and he did exactly what he was supposed to do, and that is kill everybody. That's what the text is saying. The military killed everybody. Verse 28, he utterly destroyed it and every person who was left in it and there was no survivor. Verse 30, he struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor. Verse 32, he struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword. Verse 33, Joshua defeated him and his people until he had left no survivor. Verse 35, they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he utterly destroyed that day every person who was in it. Verse 37, he left no survivor according to all that he had done to Eglon. And he utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. And verse 39 says, they struck them with the edge of the sword and they utterly destroyed every person who was in it and he left no survivor Uh, I hope your stomach isn't squeamish this morning Uh, this text talks about the destruction and the killing of the whole southern region of Canaan and is if we didn't grasp that that was the means by which Israel would enter into its rest uh, it is summarized for us again in verse 40 looking back on those campaigns through the southern Canaanite region, says Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, the Negev, the lowland, the slopes with all of their kings, and he left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed. Now notice this, this is key. Just as the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded. How did they enter into their rest? Well, the text tells you they entered into their rest by killing everyone, which is what the Lord commanded. They entered into their rest through military conquest, through obedience to the command to kill. Now, that sets up chapter 11. We need that as backdrop because look at verse 1. It said, it came about when Jabin king of Hazor heard of it, he sent to Jobab king of Medan and to the king of Shabron, to the king of Asaph, and to the kings who were in the north, and the hill, and the Arab, of the south, the Chinroth, and the lowlands, the heights, the door, and the west, the Canaanite, east, and the west. And you see all of the countries there, Amorite, Perizzite, Hittite, Jebusite, Hivite. What did they do? They came out with all of their armies as the sand that is in the seashore with many horses and chariots, and they gathered to fight against Israel. 
You see, that conquest of the southern region, that real obedience that was manifested in the killing of all of the inhabitants of the southern region, is what causes the kings of the north, led by Jabin, king of Hazor, to spring into action against Israel. And so now we have another record of military conquest. Again, what we're going to read is that from north to south and east to west, Joshua destroyed the people who lived in the north. Notice that they came up a very real opponent here. The fighting force is described in terms of the League of Kings, the League of Regions, North and South and East and West, the League of Nations, Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Hivites. And they were as many as the sand is on the seashore. This is a real opponent, but notice also how they're described. They are described according to their military capability. It says, with very many horses and chariots. In other words, they used the most cutting-edge technology of the day. They used the best military technology on the face of the earth at that time was horses and chariots. Israel is facing a rather enormous opponent and a huge obstacle. And, and, and as we've noticed throughout the book of Joshua, this is precisely how God describes, or the writer describes, the situation of Israel all throughout uh, the conquest of the land. In other words, what happens here in these stories is that the, the veneer of a fairy tale is peeled off. As you read these accounts, because every time Israel faces a real opponent or a real obstacle, they are described in the most realistic terms. And, and, and so when, uh, when Joshua is told to take the people of, of Israel across the Jordan, we have these a very uh, elaborate set of commands that are given by God to Joshua, which then are passed on to Israel about in terms of the space that they must follow behind the priests and what the priests are going to do. But as soon as Israel is standing at the brink of the Jordan River and the priests are about to tip their toes in the Jordan, what do we, ha- what do we find uh, from the author? The author says, at this time of the year, the banks of the Jordan overflow. In other words, what the writer is communicating is that this obstacle is utterly impossible. This obstacle for Israel to breach this river at this time of year with this many people is an impossibility. Unless the Lord fought the battle. Unless the Lord brings his people through. Uh, At the time of the conquest of Jericho, we are told that the people of Jericho were shut in tight behind the walls of the city. We talked about how uh, the walls of Jericho uh, were twofold. There was an interior wall, and then that was fortified by uh, another compartment full of debris, and then there was an exterior wall. In other words, when the text tells us that the people of Israel, or rather Jericho, were safely behind the walls, it's telling us that this obstacle is impossible. Israel is incapable of penetrating and breaching those walls. And yet what happens? The people of Israel gain the victory by the miraculous help of God. Every time Israel is up against a serious obstacle or a serious opponent, the writer goes out of his way to describe the impossibility of it, but the reality of it as well. That's what we have here in chapter 11. They have an army and a military that is as large as the sand on the seashore, and they are equipped with the most up-to-date military equipment. 
These are not fairy tales to uh, be mined for symbolic meanings, which are helpful illustration for self-help, psychological, therapeutic remedies to modern-day problems. They are real obstacles, real opponents, real enemies, and real divine sovereign interventions of God. We can't decide when to make those things happen. God does those according to his own will, on his own timetable, according to his own sovereignty. But you notice here that they're up against an opponent that is impossible to defeat. And so, uh, what do we have here in verse 6? But, but God doing what he normally does when Israel is standing before a great opponent or a great obstacle, he comes to Joshua. Look at verse 6. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them because of them. For tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and you shall burn their chariots with fire. So what does God do here when he communicates with Joshua? He does what he's been doing all throughout. He says, first of all, promise, I will be with you. Think about every time Israel is against an enormous obstacle, what does God do? He comes and he promises help. And then after he says, I'm going to help you, then what does he say to Israel? But you must obey. You must do what I'm commanding. And here, uh, God tells Joshua to hamstring the horses and to burn the chariots with fire. Well, what do we read next in verse 7? But Joshua springs into action as Joshua normally does. And it says, Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Miram and attacked them. Now this is fascinating because unless you understand the geography of the land of Canaan, you don't get what happened here. God promised to be with him, and then God uh, commanded Joshua to spring into action militarily. What Joshua doesn't do is is go the easy route and just kind of, you know, casually stroll up to Merom. By the way, Merom is on a hilltop about 4,000 foot elevation, and it's by a very large body of water. It was to be a meeting point of the coalition of kings. In other words, they were going to meet there to plan, to strategize about how to be Israel. And what Joshua does is he beats them to the punch militarily. He has the promise of God's presence, but he doesn't just merely approach this casually. He puts all of his energy in it because it says he came upon them suddenly. Most scholars think that what Joshua did was that he marched these thousands of troops up a very steep, narrow gorge, which runs diagonally from the Dead Sea right up to Merom. And that accounts for how suddenly he came upon them. In other words, he led his troops through a very difficult, imposing set of geographical circumstances going up that ravine so that he can uh, surprise them and kill them before they have a chance to put together a military strategy to beat Israel. He neutralizes their superior numbers, and he neutralizes their superior weaponry by engaging them in hand-to-hand combat in the midst of a densely populated forest so they can't use their chariots and military weapons. Amazing. With the help of the Lord, Joshua goes forward to defeat his enemies. You read from 8 through 15, and you see the summary of the battle. It's full of more killing, right? Then you come to verse 16, and and the writer takes us past the war with Hazor and the Canaanite coalition of the north, and he says this, Joshua took all that land, the hill country, all the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Erebok, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland. 
from Mount Halak that rises towards Seir, even as far as Belgad, the Valley of Lebanon, at the foot of the Mount Hermon. In other words, what it says from north to south, from the most southern uh, region of Canaan to the furthest north of the region of Canaan, to the furthest west to the furthest east, uh, Joshua was victorious in battle. Notice one last thing here that is included in the narrative in verse 21 and 22, which is a fascinating inclusion, which is really, in a sense, unnecessary. Verse 21 says, Joshua came at that time, and he cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anath, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There was no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel. Only in Gaza. You say, why would the writer include that? I mean, isn't it self-evident? If Joshua conquered all of his foes, north, south, east, and west, and utterly destroyed all the population of all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, why would you include this? It's a fascinating thing to include here, because you remember as Israel was poised on, poised on the southern end of Canaan, 40 years before, at Kadesh Barnea, they sent out spies to spy out the land, and what did those spies report when they came back? They said, there's giants in the land. We look like grasshoppers in their sights, and their cities are larged and fortified, and the walls go up to heaven. We cannot win. They, they, they rebelled against the Lord. It was the presence of the Anakim, the presence of these giants, and there's all kinds of theories about how big these giants were, but whatever they were, they were enormous. And, and the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord there at Kadesh Barnea, and they said, there's absolutely no way we can go into the land. And now at the end of the report of the conquest, 40 years later, what is being accented? That the very obstacles that prevented the former stubborn, disobedient generation of Israelites from taking up the command to conquer the land have been conquered through the obedience of this new generation of the children of Israel. So, when we come across this verse in 23, this phrase in verse 23, that Israel had rest from war, the first thing that we understand about that is that Israel received rest from war through obedience to the command to engage in military conquest. But what verse 23 does more specifically, now that brings us to our second point this morning, is it tells us that the primary basis of Israel's uh, Possessing and acquiring rest in the land came because of the obedience of Joshua to the commandments of the Lord. It's spelled out here in the text. The author goes out of his way to make it very clear that the reason why Israel has rest from war is because Joshua did according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. In this chapter, you see Joshua doing that. In verse 9, Joshua did as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and he burned them with fire. Why is that singled out? Well, if you remember this, as you read the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, you will repeatedly encounter the admonition to not trust in the help of horses and chariots and bows and spears, but to, to trust 
in the name and the help of the Lord. And so God is testing Joshua here. He is saying to Joshua, are you going to trust in me? Are you going to observe my commandments? Are you going to believe that by my power you can defeat your enemies? Or are you going to put your help and your trust in the latest and greatest military technology today? Where will you find your help? In the name of the Lord or in the might of men? Joshua here makes it very clear that by hamstringing the horses and burning the chariots with fire, that he's going to trust in the Lord, not in military weaponry. Verse 12, we have another summary report of Joshua's obedience. It says, Joshua captured all of the cities of these kings and all of their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword, and he utterly destroyed them. Now notice this, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. You see that? Implying that the scriptures taught that the, the way that Joshua and Israel would find rest and find success is if they killed everybody in the land. That's exactly what Deuteronomy 20.16 said when it laid out the principles of warfare for taking the land of Canaan. It says there very clearly, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. So what do we read? That... Long summary of seven cities in chapter 10, where everything that had breath was destroyed and killed. We read in verse 12 that Joshua utterly destroyed them. We read in verse 11, Joshua utterly destroyed them. We read in verse 13 that Joshua burned the city of Hazor to the ground. We learn in verse 14 that the sons of Israel struck every man with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them all. They left no one who breathed. Now look at verse 15. Just to underscore one more time Joshua's obedience, the text says, Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. You can't help but see this here in chapter 11 and in chapter 10. Everywhere you turn, the writer is constantly pointing you to the obedience of Joshua. And it's not just here either. As you read throughout the entire narrative up to this point, you will repeatedly find that the the writer is telling you and pointing you to the obedience of Joshua. Chapter 1, God says to Joshua, Arise and cross this Jordan, you and all this people. The obedience is recorded in verse 10. Joshua commanded the people, said, Make prepare your provisions. We're going to cross the Jordan. Chapter 5, God comes to Joshua. He says that he is to circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And we're told Joshua circumcised the sons of Israel. In chapter 6, God told Joshua to march around this city every day for six days. What do we find Joshua doing? Commanding the people to march around the city every day for six days. Chapter 8, Joshua built an altar of the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Chapter 10, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. I have given them into your hands. The next verse says, So Joshua came upon them suddenly. Over and over and over again, the author points us to the obedience of Joshua. You see how the Bible tells you how to read it, though? I've gone through this 
painstaking process of, of going to the text and showing you over and over and over and over again the things that are emphasized because that is the author telling you how do you read this text, how do you understand it. You don't come to it with your modern ideas and your theories and, and the principles that you want to drag out of this text that you probably heard from Dr. Laura or Dr. Phil and then say, well, this is the meaning of the passage. The author communicates the purpose and the meaning by the design of the narrative, the things that are accented. And so obviously we think about this text this morning and say, what in the world does it mean to us? It's obvious, first of all, that the text means that if Joshua's obedience and Israel's obedience is constantly underscored and pointed out, then obviously one of the applications of the passage for us this morning is that God delights in obedience, obviously, right? If you were an Israelite who was reading the book of Joshua 200 years after the conquest of Palestine and you were thinking about those events and you read Joshua, obviously one of the things that you would take from it is that the Lord delights in obedience and based upon the obedience of Joshua and the people of God to God's commandments, they enjoyed rest. They enjoyed the hand of the Lord being upon them. The leaders of Israel who served as kings and as priests and prophets in subsequent generations when they read the book of Joshua were to see in the exemplary conduct of Joshua what God required of leaders. Obedience to the things of the Lord. Following the word. Doing what God had commanded. You can't miss that. If you are a church leader today and you look at the leadership of Joshua and the fact that it was characterized by utter obedience to the commands of the Lord, what you are to take from this passage is that God blesses and loves and delights in and commends obedience to all of his word. And if you are a Christian today and you are just an average believer sitting in the pew, you're hearing the message from Joshua 11 and you're seeing repeatedly the evidence of Joshua's obedience. What do you take from that? Obviously you take from that that the Lord delights in righteousness and God commands righteousness of you. God commands obedience to the word. Now that's obvious. But you say this morning, Pastor, is there gospel here? And the answer is the gospel's in the very message of Joshua's obedience. What is rest in the land of Canaan to Israel? What is it? Rest in the land of Canaan to Israel is the kingdom of God come. It's heaven to them. Over and over it's described as as a land of paradise. It's a restoration point of, of complete fellowship and harmony with the Lord where he would dwell in the center of his people and they would be holy to him and he would be their God and they would be his people. That's heaven. Well, how did they get there? How did they get to enjoy such a relationship? Well, the writer tells you in verse 23. Joshua did according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and thus Israel had rest. How did Israel receive their rest? By the obedience of Joshua to the commandments of the Lord, who led the people of God into their Canaanite rest. 
But we read the Bible as not just as Old Testament believers. We read it in light of the new, in view of the new covenant, in view of the victory of Jesus, in view of Jesus who is the greater Joshua. And Paul accents again that the pathway to the eternal kingdom and to the rest, which is typified by the rest of the land of Canaan, that we also get into that rest by the obedience of a greater Joshua. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Notice that Paul makes it utterly plain that Jesus' work of salvation is what? It's obedience. It's obedience for him, and the obedience that was required of him was obedience to the death on the cross. But what did that secure for Jesus and for those who who love him and believe in him? Well, Paul goes on to say in verse 9 of Philippians 2, for this reason, a God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those who are under earth. In other words, what did Jesus secure by his obedience? But the kingdom of God. See, we're being taught how to read the Bible from the Bible. And the Bible is telling us that these stories are not just symbolic. They're not just illustrative. They are theologically coherent. The obedience of Joshua in leading the people of Israel in conquest that they would obtain their rest is a type. It points to greater Joshua, who by his obedience leads his people into rest. And he has secured that. And because he has secured that, Jesus holds out rest now for people. He says in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find what? What does Jesus say there? What does he say? He says you will take and you will find rest for your soul. Rest for your soul. That's what Jesus holds out because of his obedience to everyone who comes to him by faith. He holds out rest for your soul. What does Joshua point us to then this morning in chapter 11? He points us to Jesus who holds out rest to your soul. I love how Jesus puts it there though in those verses. You can't miss it. He says, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come unto me all you people who are, who are tired. You're exhausted from, from the strivings of self-righteousness. Uh, come to me all you who are weary from... Uh, from the sins that you have been living in and all of the guilt and all of the fear and all of the anxiety that comes to you from that. He says, all of you who are struggling and, and, and just tired from the ravages of sin in your life, he says, to you people, come to me. And you will find rest for your soul. Joshua points us to a rest that Israel had. But it points us beyond that to a rest that Christ gives. One last thing here that I want us to see from our passage. We saw, first of all, that Israel received uh, 
rest from obedience to uh, the command to take up the sword and destroy the Canaanites. Uh, We saw, secondly, that Israel received rest uh, through uh, the obedience of Joshua primarily and particularly, who because of his obedience led Israel into their rest. Now, notice thirdly and finally, that Israel received rest through the disobedience of the Canaanites. They received rest through the disobedience of the Canaanites. Look at verse 20. And I I hope this stood out to you when we read through it. And I hope you marked it in your Bible as uh, something to return to. Because it is uh, very interesting and and perplexing. It says, um, it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, to meet them in battle, that they might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy. You see that? Why did Israel end up in a predicament where, through obedience, they would have to secure the land of rest by, by, by taking, by military conquest, the Canaanites? Why was it that Joshua's obedience had to be singled out as an obedience uh, unto the commandment of God, particularly to kill the Canaanites? Why was it that it was set up that way? Well, the writer here says it's because the Lord hardened their hearts. We received very, very helpful answer to why there was this, this huge narrative of conquest in the first place. Because the people of Canaan had their hearts hardened by the Lord so that they would meet Israel in battle and that they would be utterly destroyed and that they would receive no mercy. That's a hard verse. That's a very hard verse. It helps us make sense of why these battles are here. I mean, you think about it. How many times did we hear in the book that the land, the the people of the land, when they heard about the exploits of the Lord and delivering Israel from Egypt or taking them across the Red Sea on dry land or leading them across the Jordan River or causing the walls of Jericho to fall outward miraculously. But what did we see as the response of the people of the land? They feared God. They were afraid. They trembled. They they heard of the exploits. They knew the supernatural work. They understood the power of the Lord. And they quaked in fear. And yet, you have to ask yourself the question, why would they go against Israel? Why wouldn't they do what Rahab did when Rahab heard of the miraculous deliverance from Egypt? When she heard of the part of the Red Sea? When she heard that God was going to give the land to Israel? What did Rahab do? She confessed the Lord and she received salvation. Why didn't these kings do this? Why didn't the rest of the cities do this? What tells you now, the text tells you, the Lord hardened their hearts. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, I think the key to that is found back in Genesis chapter 15. When God had come to Abraham and he told him that he would have a a family whose, whose number would be greater than the stars of the heaven of the sand of the seashore. He told him about a land that those descendants would inherit. And after he told him that, he told them this. He says, you're going to have to go down to Egypt for 400 years. Because the iniquity of the Canaanites is not full. 
For 400 years, in other words, God took his hand of restraint off the Canaanites. And for 400 years, this culture, this people, this group of idolaters engaged more and more in their idolatry, more and more in their sexual immorality, which is singled out as a reason for why Israel was going to go in and conquer this land and kill everybody who lived in it. For hundreds of years, God took the hand of restraint off them, gave them over to their lust. That's exactly what it means when it says the Lord hardened their hearts. And after a while, after hundreds of years of indulging in unrestrained sin and licentiousness, sin just flat darkened their minds to the point that they would rather choose death They would rather receive judgment than mercy. Because sin darkened their minds to the point that they were callous, past feeling, and would rather live in sin than live with the Lord in fellowship. Sin blinded them. That's what this means when it says the Lord hardened their hearts. He gave them over to what they wanted, and what they wanted was a world where they didn't have to meet the Lord. A world where they could live according to their desires. The result of that was no mercy and comprehensive death. As we close this morning on that somber note, I, I believe that there is an admonition to us. There is an admonition that we are to take from the example of the disobedience of the people of Canaan. And that is that you cannot live in unrestrained sin and not turn from it. Now Paul describes it differently in the book of Corinthians when he says in chapter 6, he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He said, don't be deceived, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindles will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, he says, you have to come to grips with this. You cannot live in unrepentant sin and receive the kingdom of God. The people of the land of Canaan wanted to live in unrepentant sin. And therefore, they did not receive or take part of, or participate in the kingdom of God. Why does it happen that people refuse to hear the admonition of the Lord? Well, Paul tells us, they deceive themselves. They tell themselves that now is not a good time to repent. Now is not a good time to turn. Now is not when they want to give up their freedom. But someday we will. Someday we will. Someday we'll turn from our, our sinfulness. And someday we'll flee to the kingdom. But that's not how sin works. Sin darkens. Sin calluses the heart. And sin eventually leaves people so hardened that they can no longer hear the admonitions and they no longer embrace the promise. It's an admonition to us this morning to hear about what sin does and to flee it. To depart from sin out of the fear of the Lord. And to flee to Christ. And if we do the very same rest that is typologically held out here, which is fulfilled in Jesus, is the same rest that we will find when we flee from our sins.
And the same rest that is pointed out, which is eternal fellowship with God, will be ours when we flee from our disobedience to the obedience of Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua. May God help us all to flee from ourselves and our sin to Jesus this morning as we hear about our Savior who offers us his rest. Amen.